think it's everyone's talking about a Fed pivot, right? Fed pivot, Fed pivot, Fed pivot. But everyone kind of just throws that term in and then they don't ask, wait, what are we talking about? Like, what, what is it? Does a Fed pivot mean we're going to go from hiking to not hiking? Does it mean we're going to go from hiking to cutting? Does it mean we're going to go from hiking 75 to hiking 50? Like, what does a pivot mean? What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how was your Halloween? It was awesome, Aaron. I, I love the Halloween holiday. I, I loved it growing up. I lost love for it. And then once you have a kid, you regain love for it. So we went all out, did the house like crazy, did the trick-or-treating, scared some kids, handed out some candy, <laughs> watched a spooky movie. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was a great, great weekend. How about yours? Uh, I had a pretty good weekend too. Uh, celebrated Halloween down in Tampa. So good times there. But next year, hopefully you and I can celebrate it together and have those good times together. Got to come to the annual Lango Halloween party, man. Invites open. I'm looking forward to it. It's in my calendar already. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to getting into our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, vertical farming, inflation, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. <laughs> All right, Luke. I know you said that the micros only start mattering once the macros stop mattering, but we have to talk about one of those micros right now. So far, one of your darlings. The yes. stock soared yesterday after reporting yet another excellent quarter. That's two blockbuster quarters in a row now. And mm -hmm. I know you're excited about the student loan moratorium ending in 2023 and giving the business even more firepower. Mm -hmm. So question is, how should we think about SoFi stock going into the next year? I think people should think very bullishly on SoFi stock going into the next year. Um, as you guys know, I've been a long-term bull on SoFi. It's one of my favorite long-term investments. I think it is the Amazon of finance or creating an all-in-one super app for finance that younger consumers, millennial Gen Zs really, really like, really gravitate towards. Um, their suite of products is excellent and second to none in my opinion. It's the only app in the world where I can have a <clears throat> checking account, a savings account, invest in crypto, invest in stocks, um, have a credit card, debit card attached to all that and learn about stuff through their educational content and set budgets for myself and do auto savings and also earn great rewards on all my spending. It's the only app I know of in existence in the world today that can do all of that, you know, from the palm of your hand. And I don't have to jump between apps, open different windows, go to different places, have different logins. No, it's just one place to do all of that. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic. I love it. Everybody that I've shown to the product that has on, been onboarded and has come onto the product loves it as well. Um, I think it's a fantastic product. And one of my core investment tenants is 
invest in great businesses that build great products because a lot of people will use great products. And if a lot of people use great products, a great business will figure out how to monetize that great product. And that's exactly what SoFi is doing. Um, so I'm, I am blown away by their excellent growth in this environment. And one of the things that I look at when investing in companies is not just, okay, you grew revenues 50% year over year, congratulations, but any context to that? What did you grow revenues by last quarter or the quarter before that? I like to look at what I call the, well, not what I call, but what is known as a derivative of your growth. So I'm trying to look at your growth um, velocity. Where is your growth trending? Are you losing velocity? Are you gaining velocity? I just want to look at your raw growth. Tell me what the trend is. When I look at SoFi, the trend is so, so positive. If you just look at the recent quarter, look at member growth. They grew members by 61% year over year uh, in the third quarter of 2022. It's this most recent quarter. Quarter before that, 69%. Quarter before that, 70%, 87%. So yes, they're losing some velocity. But I mean, those are some pretty good growth rates. 87, 70, 69, 61. They're not slowing all that much. That's fantastic growth. You look at the raw numbers. 408,000 new members, 450,000 members, 424,000 new members. So they're consistently adding more than 400,000 new members every single quarter. That's amazing. That's really, really strong growth. No other bank out there, no other financial app out there is growing that quickly. So that speaks to, you know, people are gravitating towards the SoFi application. You look at product growth, look at the derivative there. 105%, 84%, 79%, 69% quarter. So again, a slowing, which is natural, but it remains very vigorous. 69% year-over-year growth in products uh, last quarter. Fantastic. Galileo accounts, 58%, 48%, 40%. So what I'm saying is that across all of their KPIs, the key performance indicators, the growth velocity is exceptionally impressive just by itself, but very much so considering the context of the economy, considering we are in a slowing economy, considering interest rates are going higher, considering consumer spending, while resilient, is definitely slowing, considering consumer confidence is low, considering the labor market is getting a little bit tighter. Um, when you look at that, you would expect a brand new financial application, financial service provider like SoFi to get hit pretty hard. And that's why the stock has been hit pretty hard. But the numbers aren't getting hit hard. The numbers are showing a business that continues to fire on all cylinders. And then to your point, student loan moratorium. This was a company that made its killing, defined itself as a student loan refinancing platform. That business has essentially dried up for the past 18 months, 24 months because of the student loan moratorium. That moratorium is ending in 2023. So one of SoFi's most powerful growth catalysts comes back into the pipeline in two months. And the company's already firing on all cylinders in an environment where it shouldn't be firing on all cylinders. So come 2023, maybe the macro environment improves and they get the student loan uh, business backfiring on all cylinders as well. That This is a company that could go absolutely blockbuster next year. And the stock price is significantly undervalued to a point where if the company does gain growth velocity in 2023, the stock should explode higher. $5 yesterday, $6 today. It's easy to see this as a 20 25 $30 stock in 12 months under the circumstances I just laid out, which I think is very, 
very possible. So I am very bullish on SoFi going into 2023. I'm very bullish on SoFi going into the end of the year. I think SoFi five, six bucks is one of the best investment opportunities I've ever seen in my career. So long SoFi, bullish SoFi, let it be known. I'll pound on the table, scream from the rooftops. That's how I feel. <laughs> so that's SoFi going into next year. But what mm-hmm. about the you know five, 10-year outlook for SoFi when right. – you talk about how SoFi is the Amazon of finance right now. I think about Amazon. Amazon really was the first of its kind when it comes to online retail. Mm-hmm. The concept of online banking, that's not new. SoFi is just the one kind of collating all these different things into one platform. What happens when other banks kind of catch up with SoFi, start adding those features to their online banking systems? Right. Does SoFi last five years, 10 years out? Right. Well, Amazon actually wasn't the first e-commerce. There were a lot of companies that were before Amazon to e-commerce. Boo.com is one that comes to mind. Um, there were a lot. So Amazon wasn't first. Amazon became king because Amazon was built religiously on the belief that the customer is king. That Jeff mm-hmm. Bezos understood intimately that if I'm going to beat everybody in retail, I need to create a product that is second to none for the consumer. Screw my profit margins, screw my business. I will build something that eats my profit margins, eats all that, so long as it delivers a super cheap, super convenient, super accessible product to the customer. Knowing that if his product does that, then a lot of people will use it and he can benefit from economies of scale and Amazon can become profitable at scale. That's exactly what happened. So I see SoFi doing the exact same thing. It's the same playbook. SoFi is eliminating fees, giving 3% cash back on credit cards. They're doing everything possible to make the most convenient, cheapest, lowest cost, easiest access financial product in existence. So they're beating all the other banks at that today. And I think that's where the Amazon analogy comes in. It's like, okay, so Amazon wasn't first, but Amazon made it best for the customer. SoFi wasn't first, but SoFi has made banking best for the customer. Again, what other app in existence allows you to have a checking savings account, credit and debit account, a credit card and debit card attached to those, invest in cryptos, invest in stocks, learn about all the tools that you're using, financial education, have Relay, which is their... Um, uh, budgeting software and earn significant rewards on your spend. There's no other app in existence that does it. All for no fees, essentially, with a great rewards program on their credit card. So, like, it, it just the perks are unreal, and the perks keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm getting emails every week, it seems, about something news happening. Is you know we're, we're upping this reward, we're we're reducing this fee. So they continue to build a product that is second to none for the customer, and as a result, they're going to get a lot of customers. And once they get a lot of customers, they can leverage economies of scale to become a massively profitable business. Now, to be clear, the company is already profitable on a adjusted EBITDA basis, but their profits are going to soar over the next five to 10 years thanks to economies of scale, which is a result of building a product that is second to none for the customer. So that's why I really like SoFi. What happens when the other online banks come on? Well, what happened when Macy's tried to digitize? What happened when Nordstrom tried to digitize? What happened when JCPenney tried to digitize? What happened when Sears tried to digitize? Um, what happened when Walmart tried to digitize? Yeah, they had some success, absolutely. But by that time in the game, Amazon had reached escape velocity, right? Amazon had already built a distribution network. Amazon developed a reputation as the online shopping store. Um, it was able to leverage a conscious scale to deliver even more cost-saving benefits. Because that's another thing, right? If, if Amazon sells more products, 
And that means it can actually reduce prices a little bit on the products it sells because it's leveraging economies of scale. SoFi is going to be the same. The bigger it gets, presumably, the cheaper its products can be, the lower its fees can be, the better its perks can be, the better its rewards programs can be. So the bigger SoFi gets, the bigger its competitive moat gets as well. And the more differentiated it becomes from you know, a Wells Fargo online banking or a Bank of America online banking or any of those um, incumbents trying to digitize. So in the same way that Amazon defended itself through network effects and economies of scale uh, from, you know, Nordstrom and Macy's digitizing and taking their um, pie, I think SoFi is the exact same with with Wells Fargo, Bank of America, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And that's why I'm really bullish on them in in a five to 10 year outlook. In a five to 10 year outlook, I think they will be a bank that is larger than Wells Fargo and Bank of America. I really do. Uh, From a consumer banking perspective, they don't do any of the other stuff. But um, from a consumer banking perspective, I think they will be bigger than both of those. Um, And I am a proud, don't have my wallet (laughs) on, but I am, I I, I would pull it out. I love to pull it out. I would pull out my SoFi card, but I am, I'm a proud user, proud customer. And, um, you know, the, the old adage, only invest in what you know. Well, I know SoFi very, very well. And I'm very confident in the business, very confident in the people running it. They have a bunch of really smart people running it. And then that's actually another thing I want to talk about is the final competitive advantage for SoFi is just the talent. Banks were built mm-hmm. as banks. They were built with financial people. Wells Fargo gets economics majors, finance majors. They don't get many CS majors. Bank of America, they get finance majors, economics majors, business majors. They don't get many CS majors, uh, computer science majors. SoFi is built as a tech company. SoFi is not built as a bank company. It's got tech woven into its DNA. So they have a lot of computer science folks on staff, a lot of computer science folks. And let's say I'm, you know, this, this great software engineer coming out of Stanford, Caltech, MIT, Berkeley, wherever it may be. Um, do I want to go work for SoFi, up and coming, disruptor, super fast growth, could be the next big thing. If stock could be worth a lot in the future, or do I want to go work for Bank of America or Wells Fargo? You know, the, the choice is pretty crystal clear. And the disruptive minds, the innovative minds, the very forward thinking people, the very talented people are going to want to go work for SoFi over legacy banks. And that is another thing, another advantage that's going to allow SoFi to essentially rewrite the rules of this industry. Um, as you can tell, I'm very bullish on SoFi stock. But we can move on. <laughs> um, just, yeah, I want to say that $5, 6 bucks at SoFi stock is an absolute steal. All right. Uh, with SoFi out of the way, let's switch gears and let's talk about those macros. Uh, Fed day tomorrow. Uh, again, yeah. by the time this releases, I think people should have a better idea of what's going on. Well, uh, are they going 75? And more importantly, does it matter? Right, right. Yeah, great questions. Um, the second question is much more important than the first. The first, yes, they are going to go 75 basis points. Absolutely, no doubt, 100% chance they're going, okay, 99.9% chance they're going 75 basis points. Um, and then there's probably a really high chance, 80% plus, that they guide towards 50 basis points in, in December, the same thing that they said before. I don't think they're going to change from that script. Um what matters is the rhetoric, language, sentiment that Jerome Powell embodies in his post-announcement uh, press conference. That pivots, everyone's talking about a Fed pivot, right? Fed pivot, Fed pivot, Fed pivot. But everyone kind of just throws that term in and then they don't ask, wait, what are we talking about? Like what, what is it? Does a Fed pivot mean we're going to go from hiking to not hiking? Does it mean we're going to go from hiking to cutting? 
Does it mean we're going to go from hiking 75 to hiking 50? Like, what does a pivot mean? No one really defines pivot. So in my opinion, in our opinions, pivot is a process. The Fed pivot is a process that starts with a language shift. It starts with the Fed going from rates to the moon, fight inflation at all costs to maybe, you know, we're doing a good job. Inflation's coming down. Um, maybe we'll think about slowing in 22. Maybe, who knows? Just a softer tone. That is the first step of the pivot, is a language pivot, a sentiment pivot, a rhetoric pivot. That's the first step of the pivot. The second step of the pivot is slowing the pace of rate hikes, so going from 75 to 50 basis points. The third step of the pivot is going from hiking rates to not hiking rates, so going from 50, 25 to no rate hikes. And then the fourth step of the pivot is going from no rate hikes to rate cuts. So to us, the pivot is a process, a four-step process. Language shifts, rate hikes slow down, rate pause, rate cuts. And I'm of the belief that that pivot starts on Wednesday, that we're going to get the first step, a language pivot, a rhetoric pivot, a sentiment pivot. We have seen Powell be nothing but ultra hawkish for several months now. That has been his job. I think he switches a little bit from that script. I'm not saying he goes... We're going to stop cutting rates. We're going to stop hiking rates. We're going to be super dovish. No, no, no. He's just going to pivot a little bit. And that's going to be the start. And then in December, we're going to get the second step, which is slow the roll from 75 to 50. And then probably sometime in early 23, we're going to get the third step. They're going to go 50, 25. They're going to stop hiking rates. And then sometime in mid, late 23, we're going to get the fourth step, which is going from not hiking or from keeping rates uh, flat to actually cutting rates. So, I think we're about to embark on a four-step Fed pivot process that's going to last from late 22 into late 23. You don't need to wait for that fourth step to get back into stocks. I think stocks can rally and work and be constructive if you're just in step one because we've been beaten down so badly. So that's why I am bullish on stocks going into the Fed meeting. I think we are going to get the start of a four-part Fed pivot process that um, lasts for 12 months. And along that process, stocks grind higher or actually move significantly higher. However, there is the risk that that pivot does not start tomorrow, that Powell doesn't at all deviate from his super hawkish uh, script and instead stays super hawkish. Then that Fed pivot process probably doesn't start until early 23, maybe mid 23. So you got to delay it. In the event that happens and the stock market will take one big final leg lower and then rebound once that Fed pivot process does start. So that's what we're kind of doing right now. We're kind of like in this waiting game where we know stocks are going to soar. History tells us we have 125 years of market history data saying that when stocks drop 25% the way they have in 2022, you buy the dip because – 12 months later, they are almost always higher. 24 months later, they are always higher. 36 months later, they're always higher by a shit ton. So what you have to understand is that what we want to do is be buyers of stocks when they're down 25%. That's what we want to do as long-term investors. You want to get into the market. But you want to have a phase-in plan, not an all-in plan. Because you don't know when that turnaround exactly is going to start. We know that it's going to start when this four-part Fed pivot process happens. But is that going to start tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, November 2nd? 
Or is that going to start in early December? Or is it going to start in early February? When's it going to start? We're not exactly sure. I am strongly of the belief that the Fed pivot will start sometime over the next three to four months. And I do believe that if you to do a, were to do a probabilities curve on that, that the probability would be weighted towards it starting on Wednesday, November 2nd. But there is room for it to start in December or February or March. And so as a result of that, you don't want to go all in right now. You want to phase in because stocks will soar eventually. The bottom is close. This might be it, but it may not be it. So phase in, save dry powder in case we're wrong, in case the Fed stays ultra hawkish and we have one more big final swoon later. So the way I see it is there's two paths for stocks. Either one, we get the start of the Fed pivot process tomorrow, Wednesday, November 2nd, and we're off to boom cycle 2023, or we get a crash because the Fed does not pivot and we drop another 10 to 15%. And that's a final wipeout. And then we start the rebound process at some point in 23. Those are one, those are the two paths I see going forward. Either way, you want to be a buyer today because in 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, stocks will be higher. And if you're not investing for that long of a time frame, then you shouldn't be investing at all. So that's how I view the markets right now. That's how I view the Fed. Does it matter? It matters. Of course it matters, but I don't think it changes the investment thesis. You'll want to be a buyer here. Okay, so based on those two paths, one being a Fed pivot with a, with a surge going into 2023 or no Fed pivot and stocks take one final dip, you're saying, again, essentially now is the time to be a buyer. Can mm -hmm. you walk me through the scenario of how to invest in each of those uh, scenarios? Right, right. So, um, yeah, I think in the, in the scenario where they do start the Fed pivot process, uh, you want to get really aggressive on, on risky assets, on long duration assets, because the Fed pivot process is going to spark a, a retracement of treasury yields. It's going to bring interest rate expectations lower. It's going to bring mortgage rates lower. Uh, it's going to cause all rates, yields, all that stuff to move lower, which is going to be a boost to long duration assets. It's going to be a boost to all risk assets, but an especially large boost to long duration risk assets. So I'm talking growth stocks. I'm talking tech stocks. I'm talking cryptos. I'm talking anything that is far out on the risk curve that has a long duration value attached to it that is valued based off of 2027, 2030, 2032 estimates. Those stocks, those assets are going to perform exceptionally well in the first scenario where the Fed does pivot and we start that pivot process and we get a new bull market in 2023. Um, because those assets, again, they do really well when rates and yields come down. They also do really well in new bull market formations because that's when animal spirits start arising. People come back to the market, reignited, boom, they buy those risk assets. So I think those stocks will be the by far and away the largest winners over the next 12 months if the Fed process does start on Wednesday, November 2nd. Now, if the Fed process gets delayed into early 23, then I think the next three to four months are going to be choppy for a lot of different things. You can play defensive if you want. But eventually, when that Fed process does start, again, it's going to be those risk assets, those long duration growth stocks, cryptos, equities. That's where you're going to get a massive boom. Now, the thing that I like about buying those stocks here, regardless of which, you know, we go right or we go left in the scenario is that they're already so washed out. A lot of these stocks are already down 70, 80%. You look at history, you look over the past 50 years of market data, 70 years of market data, 
yes, stocks do drop 70 or 80%. It happens. Microsoft stock has dropped 70%. Apple stock, um, uh, Netflix stock, um, uh, Apple stock, uh, IBM stock, all these stocks, Intel, NVIDIA, all these stocks have dropped 70 80% before. But that's kind of where they max out. They, they don't go much lower than 80% down. Amazon stock, I think maybe went 90% down, but most stocks don't go much more than 70 to 80% from their highs. So when you have this group of stocks, that's already down 70 to 80% from their highs. And they are the very group of stocks that will rally the most once an inevitable Fed pivot does materialize, whether it's in late 22, early 23, or mid 23, sometime over the next six to nine, over the next one to nine months, you're going to get a Fed pivot. So that means you have this group of stocks that is historically as beaten up as any stock has ever been with a massive catalyst on the horizon to move shares significantly higher. I think you just have to be a buyer of those assets on the understanding that, yeah, they may not rip higher right now, but they are either at or very close to lows. They're all forming basing patterns right now. And they are like coiled springs that as soon as the Fed does embark, start on its four-part Fed pivot process, then that coiled spring is going to unleash a massive rally in these assets. So which way we go, doesn't matter to me. I'm a dip buyer. Which way we go also doesn't matter to me in terms of what I'm buying. I'm buying those assets. They're on sale. They're really, really attractive. And actually, what I really like about this market right now, this is why I love bear markets, is that we, a lot of times, I, I aim for growth. I love to get big returns. That's that's my whole game. But in order to do that in a regular market, you got to go far out on the risk curve. You just have to because – Amazon's always overvalued, right? It's just a fantastic firm. It's always going to be over. The stock's always going to be overvalued. There's not going to be a lot of alpha production there. So I don't like to buy Amazon stock in regular markets. Microsoft stock, same thing. Um, Netflix stock, same thing. Uh, Google stock, Alphabet stock, same thing, right? Like the really high quality, already established, mature firms typically aren't great stocks to buy because they're always overvalued because everybody knows they're great. But in bear markets, those stocks finally come on sale. Finally. So what we can do is we can de-risk. We can decrease our risk exposure, come back in on the risk curve and actually buy really super high quality, super strong, very mature, very established firms at super discounted stock prices on the understanding that because they're discounted, they can now give us a lot of outperformance potential over the next 12 to 24 months. And that's what we've been doing. As this bear market has gotten deeper and become more widespread, we've gone in on the risk curve and we've grown up in market cap. So as opposed to the SoFi's of the world, which we've been pounding the table on for a while, we're now looking into the Netflixes of the world, the Amazons of the world. Right, We're looking up the market cap ladder. We're looking at market leaders that have now come into major discount territory. That's what I love about bear markets. You can buy, you can finally buy those assets at huge discounts and then just wait for them to turn around and soar over the next two to three years. So that's where we're looking right now. That's why I'm really excited. And with the turnaround definitely in sight, 
You know, I think, again, November 2nd could be that turning point day. But again, if it's not, doesn't matter to me. I know it's coming over the next one to nine months. So I got time to wait. Um, I'm going to be a dip buyer. I'm going to hold through the chaos. And I'm going to make a lot of money over the next three to five years as that inevitable materializes and we go back into an economy with low inflation, low interest rates, low yields, and rising stock prices. Got to be a buyer of stocks here. Cannot emphasize that enough. <laughs> so it sounds like, again, regardless of which path we take, uh, regardless of the macro outlook, tech is the good investment option over the next two to three years. Um, so where are you seeing the best opportunities right now, aside from the ones that you've already mentioned? Right. Yeah. So like I said, um, large cap tech is, is looking interesting. Mid cap tech is looking interesting. I mean, there, there are some names out there that are that are pretty compelling because they're, they're just there's a lot of great companies that got way overvalued in the pandemic, and now they've come back down into very reasonable and sometimes discounted valuation territory, and you got to buy that dip. So I like that category of mid to large cap tech stocks, very high gross margin, looking at software businesses a lot of times. So I'm looking for 80% plus gross margins, looking for firms that are free cash flow positive, like very just solid financial fundamentals, sticky businesses, lots of annual recurring revenue streams, high customer retention rates, like just very solid financial fundamentals. Those stocks have SaaS stocks, high quality SaaS stocks have been forever overvalued. Now they're not. So take advantage of that. So I really like the opportunity there. Um, and we've talked about my other, the big three kind of themes that I had in 23 still remain very bullish on it. I think the robotics narrative is, I mean, it's going to be huge. So I have a little anecdote for you. Halloween, <laughs> Halloween night. That was last night, right? Halloween night. Halloween night is the busiest night of the year for Domino's pizza. Didn't know that until last night, but I learned it very quickly because I went in there <laughs> to grab a pizza that I had ordered 30 minutes prior that they said was ready. I went in there and they said, oh, busiest night of the year. Sorry, um, it, it's it's not even on our like docket yet. Like you're way down. You're not even on our screen to be to, for us to start making it yet. And I was like, okay, so how long is it going to be? Like, oh, give us another 30 minutes. And I said, okay. Got in my car, went home. Came back down 30 minutes later. Hey, picking up a pizza for Luke Lango. You guys, you guys got it ready yet? Um Oh, no, dude, you're still, you're still not on the docket. I mean, we, we got so many orders here. And they're like, I'm like, okay, how much longer do I have to wait? Like probably another 45, 50 minutes, honestly. And I was like, wait, it was just 30 minutes, 30 minutes ago. And now it's 40. So like it should have been like an hour 15. Like what's going on here? And they're like, oh, dude, it's, it's the busiest night of the year for us. We have a huge labor shortage. Like just look at the sign. And I should have read the sign right next to where my face was, me, me the dummy, looking over the sign. Oh. Halloween is our busiest night of the year, and we are experiencing a severe labor shortage. Sorry for your long wait times, but thank you for your patience. Domino's Pizza. I was like, oh, okay. And normally I'm the type of guy that like I try not to get angry at things like that, but sometimes I do. But like I looked at that sign. I heard him say labor shortage, and I, I actually <laughs> deep down I was, I was kind of like, hmm, you know what? I would wait five hours for this pizza. Because this is exactly why this shows me that my one of my central investment themes is 100% true. That we need labor automation in blue collar jobs. We need labor automation for pizza making. 
We need labor automation for delivery driving. We need labor automation for truck driving. We need labor automation for warehouses. We need labor automation for construction. I mean, think about the housing shortage. We've talked about this before. Home prices are falling, yes, but they are barely falling relative to how much they rose during the pandemic. And they're not going to fall that much because there is simply not enough homes in the market. And that's because we don't have enough people to make those homes. We need automation to solve the housing crisis. We need automation so I can get my pizza on Halloween night. We need automation in this world. I, I, I know it's a joke. I know I'm laughing about it too. But it is a microcosm of the reality we live in. The reality we live in is we had a labor market that got massively bifurcated. We told kids you can make $200,000 a year typing away at a computer, going to work for Facebook, going to work for Google, going to work for Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they all became software engineers. They all became coders. Everybody stopped becoming hardware people. Everybody stopped wanting to work in construction. No, everybody thought they were above waiting in restaurants. Everybody thought they were above delivering pizzas. Everybody thought they were above that stuff. And so they they shot for you know the $200,000 jobs, and a lot of them got it. But the, the reality is what happened is now we have a bifurcated labor market where we have a surplus of people that can code and a dearth of people that can do you know real work with your hands, landscaping, construction, all that stuff. There is a massive shortage everywhere. Every restaurant you'll go to right now, I bet there will be a we're hiring sign outside. Yet, Elon Musk is about to lay off 75% of Twitter employees. Bifurcation. They're juxtaposed with one another. It's wild to me how that's happening. And I think what what is going to happen on, on the big tech side is Elon's going to come in, he's going to fire 75% of Twitter, he's going to still grow the business, and that's just going to show the rest of the world, wow, there's a lot of dead weight in big tech companies that, you know, Meta can probably let go of a lot of people. Apple can probably let go of a lot of people. Uh, Netflix can probably let go of a lot of people. Amazon can probably let go of a lot of people. Alphabet can probably let go of a lot of people. That Elon Musk coming in and shaking things up from a OPEX perspective, an employee-based perspective, is going to show the world how much coasting and dead weight there was in big tech companies. And then that's going to make the whole labor situation so much worse because then these people are who are coasting over here, then they're going to get let off, and then we're still going to have this massive labor shortage over there. You think somebody's going to go from you know programming at Google for $250,000 a year to making pizzas? Probably not. So that's still not going to fix the problem. It's going to make it worse. So what we need, the only way to fix this problem is to get robots in Domino's making pizzas, is to get robots in cars delivering pizzas, is to get robots in warehouses packaging uh, uh, part or desorting inbound parcels and resorting outbound parcels. That's how we fix this problem. I'm very impassioned about this because I really think it's a huge problem for society. I think we are on the cusp of a, of a very big big problem. Now, the, the biggest thing in here, we talked about it last week, is that, okay, let's think about this long-term, real big picture. People aren't having kids. Population's declining in developed economies. That means the labor market's going to shrink. We already have a labor shortage on the low-level uh, uh, blue-collar blue America work. We shrink the labor pool. That shortage gets bigger. So there's no like influx of workers coming in here to fix that hole. There is no solution. I repeat, there is no solution to the labor shortage outside of automation. 
So this whole narrative of robots are coming to take our jobs. No, robots are coming to allow society to keep functioning at the level it's functioning at today. Because without them, we won't be able to. We just won't. So I think that it that is a very powerful investment theme. Is it going to take off in 2023? I mean, I think the stocks will do well in 2023 because, hey, they're long-duration assets. But long-term, 5, 10 years, robotic stocks are where you want to be. This is a huge idea. There's a lot of potential, a lot of economic potential. You want to be in these stocks. And so I'm very bullish on all of our robotics automation stocks. I think those things are going to be big time winners. Um, Man, I got sidetracked there. What was the first question that you asked me anyways? (laughs) Uh, The tech opportunities you're seeing right now. uh, Right. And then I got into automation and robotics. Yeah. yeah. um, Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, so I, I do like climate tech for 23. I think climate tech is, is going to be very, very strong. We've seen a bunch of solar companies report earnings this quarter. Uh, they've pretty much all been fantastic. Double beats and raises, uh, accelerating revenue growth, expanding margins. The supply chain issues are improving. Demand remains very, very strong. A lot of new demand tailwinds because of the Inflation Reduction Act. So you're seeing very strong tailwinds in, in the climate Um climate tech space. So I, I would remain very long those stocks. Energy storage, I think, is really coming into its own. Really like those stocks. Um, so yeah, that, that's sort of the wheelhouse that, that we're in. I would say robotics, climate tech as kind of themes for 23. And then as an investment strategy, just kind of looking out at really high quality stocks that have perpetually been overvalued that have now come crashing down and are actually discounted now. Start, you know, start thinking about those names. It's time to start getting aggressive on those names. So that's that's where our strategy is. That's that's how we're thinking about the markets. And honestly, we're very, very excited to be in the market today with those opportunities. We think the next 12, 24, 36 months are going to be, I mean, fantastic. So, yeah. All right. So we definitely know where you stand with tech, with uh, your big three, robotics, climate uh, and space. Uh, but I want to switch gears a little bit with the earnings season. Uh, mm-hmm. Last we spoke, they were good, but it seems that big tech kind of dropped the ball. Yes. So how do the numbers mm-hmm. look now? Right. Yeah. Big tech dropped the ball and the earnings are still great. That's that's the beauty of it. Right. It's it's big tech disappointed, mostly because there's a slowdown in cloud. So Alphabet had a slowdown in cloud. Um, the advertising business also didn't do great. Um Amazon had a slowdown in cloud, but its e-commerce business really accelerated. It uh, really did well in the quarter. Um, Meta had struggles with digital advertising. So the big tech guys got hit because cloud is slowing a little bit and digital advertising is getting hit really hard. And that makes sense. When a recession comes or when people are worried about a recession, uh, the first thing to go are ad budgets, right? It's like I got all this money I'm spending on marketing, but maybe the incremental demand's not there to support the incremental spend. So I'm going to reduce that marketing budget. That's always the first thing to go. So it makes sense that's getting chopped. But what's really surprising is the resilience of the consumer in this environment that everybody else is reporting really strong numbers. The average EPS surprise is still positive. The average sales surprise is still positive. Sales growth is still positive. Earnings are still growing. That the numbers are still very strong across the board for third quarter earnings, despite the big tech misses. And that speaks to the resilience of the consumer. And I believe it also illustrates why we are 100% not due for a deep recession. If we do get a recession still in the cards, it's going to be a shallow one. And that's because the consumer is so 
freaking strong. Like, so freaking strong. Context. Oh, wait, happened. Scared the living daylights out of everybody. Everybody was freaked out, biting their nails, burning holes in their carpet from praying so much they weren't going to lose their mortgage, weren't going to lose their home. People were freaked. It left deep scars, deep scars. Those deep scars resulted in a consumer, in a household, an American household that was very prudent and frugal with their finances for 12 years. 09, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. The personal savings rate in all of those years was above normal. We had 12 consecutive years of above normal personal savings rates in the United States. Then the pandemic hit and the savings rate went bananas. 2020 highest personal savings rate ever in the history of the American economy. And 2021 was pretty high too. So yes, people are pointing out, oh my gosh, 2022 panic time because the personal savings rate has collapsed to below normal levels. And it has, but guess what? It doesn't matter because the consumer saved at an above average rate, a far above average rate for 13 years prior. So households are, despite saving less today because they're spending more because of inflation, they are sitting on massive excess savings, massive excess savings. So people feel, you know, the confidence might, the consumer confidence indicators might not be great, but from a like personal financial perspective, people feel, you know, like, I, yeah, I saved a lot of money. I can weather this storm. We'll get through it. Like that, that's the attitude. That's the mentality. When the consumer feels that way, you don't get a recession. Recessions happen when consumers stop spending. Consumer drives 70% of the U.S. economy. You only get a deep recession when the consumer stops spending. So long as the consumer keeps spending, the U.S. economy is not going into a deep recession. And the consumer will keep spending so long as they have money, so long as they have jobs. Look at the job openings report today. It was much higher than expected. There's more than, I forget what the exact number was, 10.7 million. More than 10 million open jobs in, in America. That's a historically very strong number. So people still have jobs and they have excess savings. So they're going to keep spending. And as a result, I think that a deep recession, this, this third quarter earnings season has confirmed to me that a deep recession is highly, highly, highly unlikely. It would take a significant black swan event to plunge us into a deep recession. Okay. <clears throat> um, lastly, uh, can we talk about cryptos? Uh, where are they going in 2023? Uh, I like the crypto markets for 2023. Um, again, there was a little, there was a slight rally last week, right? Yeah, there was a slight rally, and even uh, today, as we speak, the the indices are down. S and P and Nasdaq down, all down a little bit. You know, makes sense. A little bit of jitters before the Fed, um, but uh, cryptos are holding on to some gains. So that's that's very nice to see. Um, I like cryptos going into 2023. And I like them for the same reason that I've said I've liked, you know, other long duration assets. Um, this, the thing about crypto is you have to understand people gave crypto the narrative that it was a hedge against inflation, that it was intended to be a hedge against inflation when it was never intended to be a hedge against inflation, like ever. Think about the context of its birth. Satoshi invented Bitcoin, supposedly invented Bitcoin in January of 2009. You know what the inflation rate was in January of 2009? We had negative inflation in January of 2009. <laughs> we had deflation in January of 2009. So why on earth would Satoshi, 
invent a new currency to change the world, to fix inflation, if inflation was anything <laughs> but a problem at the time. Makes no sense. It'd be like, I live in this perfect home, but I'm going to tear it all down and build a new home. It's like, no, no, you would tear down your home if you live in a fixer-upper and you're going to fix it up, right? You, you People create solutions for problems. They don't just create solutions. So Satoshi invented Bitcoin in January 2009. What was happening in January 2009? What was a problem? What was a shock to the system? Well, the economy was collapsing. And what did the Fed do in response? The Fed printed a lot of money. The Fed printed a lot of dollars to save the economy. That was an unprecedented volume of dollar printing at that at that moment in time. Like we had never seen that before in American history. We've seen it since. Now, what Satoshi thought when he invented Bitcoin, now I'm kind of assuming here. But what I assumed Satoshi <laughs> thought when he invented Bitcoin was this dollar printing is probably going to persist. And the more it persists, if it accelerates, the less value the dollar is going to have. Eventually, the dollar is just going to become commoditized. That's why we need a new currency. So... I believe that Bitcoin was never invented or intended to be a hedge against inflation, but rather it was invented as and intended to be a hedge against money printing. And that's exactly what it's mm -hmm. actually done. When the Fed has the money printer on, cryptos soar. When the Fed has the money printer off, cryptos sink. 2020, March 2020, Fed turns the money printer on cryptos, Bitcoin goes from 8,000 to what was the high? 68,000? Call it 70,000? Mm -hmm. So 8,000 to 70,000 dollars. 2022, Fed turns money printer off. Crypto, Bitcoin goes from 70,000 dollars to 20,000 dollars. Crypto is a hedge against money printing. So when the Fed turns the money printer on, you buy crypto. When the Fed turns the money printer off, you sell crypto. It's a very simple strategy. And if you follow it, you'll make a lot of money with cryptos, regardless of how you believe in them, regardless if you believe in cryptocurrencies and their purpose, or you believe in the blockchain, hmm. or you don't, you think it's all farce or a scam. I got data to show you. If you buy cryptos when the money printer's on, you make a lot of money. <laughs> if you sell them when the money printer's off, you'll save yourself from losing a lot of money. So so do yourself a favor. And when the Fed turns a money printer on, buy cryptos. When they turn it off, sell cryptos. Just do it. I don't care how you, I don't care what your belief system in cryptos is. Just do that and you'll make money. Now, the thing here is that I talked to you about this. The Fed is probably going to, or the market's going to get hopeful that the Fed's going to turn the money printer back on in 2023. That the, the, what we've realized over the past several months is that the economy of the 2010s and the economy of today is not the economy we had 20 years ago. That throughout the 20s, when you have 12 years, actually it was 13 years, 14 years of essentially 0% interest rates, when you have 14 years of that, that means you have 14 years of companies issuing debt at, that, at those ultra low rates, of companies being born with venture financing at those ultra low rates, with stock markets and assets getting valuations, assets like homes getting valuations at those ultra low rates. So it's not just like we were an economy with ultra low rates for 14 years. As a result of being an economy with ultra low rates for 14 years, everything became benchmarked to low rates. Everything. 
And what we realize is that as we've hiked rates here in 2022, even though nothing is broken just yet, it certainly feels like, again, the bull in the china shop analogy, it certainly feels like if the bull keeps kicking three, four, five more times, there's not going to be one china that falls off the shelf, but every single china is going to fall off the shelf. The stock market will crash because asset valuations aren't priced for seven, eight, nine percent interest rates. Home prices will crash because they're, you know, at current prices, a 10% mortgage rate makes absolutely no sense. So home prices will crash. Car prices will crash. Profits will crash. Um, you know, real earnings will crash. The entire system will break. And that's what we've realized. And so the Fed's kind of like, oh, crap. We're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like, we got to fight inflation. But if we fight inflation tooth and nail, we could send this economy that is fragile into a deep, deep, deep winter. This is not the economy of the 70s. This is not the economy you know, where Volcker kind of came in in the early 80s and went boom, 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 boom. That economy was adjusted to 10% plus interest rates. Our economy is adjusted to sub two. So we can't go as aggressively. We can't go as fast. And I think the Fed's starting to realize that. And so I am of the belief that the money printer does get turned back on in 2023. Again, whether it's in late 22, early 23, mid 23, or late 23, I think within the next 12 months, the money printer does get turned back on, which means within the next 12 months, cryptos enter a new boom cycle. And considering the resilience of the price action on Bitcoin has shown over the past six months, I mean, it's just been hugging 20K. Right, it bounces at twenty four, comes down to eighteen, bounces twenty four. I mean, but it isn't hugging that twenty k level. That's resilience in the face of pretty macro volatility. What had it been doing prior to that? Every time stocks crashed, Bitcoin took a leg lower, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, Right, we kept just taking massive legs lower. Well, those massive legs lower have stopped. Now we're showing resilience at twenty k ahead of the prospect of the money printer being turned back on in 23. So I think it's a pretty good time to phase back into the crypto markets. And I think it's a good time to start looking for altcoins to buy because I believe that 2023 could be a very good year for cryptos. Am I talking another rally to 70, 100, 120? I don't know the price target. Cryptos are an asset where there really is no fair value. There's a bunch of different ways to come at it. But what I can tell you is that cryptos will outperform stocks if the money printer does get turned back on, which I believe it will in 2023. So that's where I stand with cryptos. I am bullish on them going into 2023. I've been very kind of mute on them for several months, pretty much all year long, because I haven't felt that way. But here we are in you know early November, and I am starting to get a, a bullish itch for cryptos again. <laughs> all right. Uh, want to switch gears to our fan questions. Uh, J G G J M G L L C asks, uh, with a pending serious diesel shortage about to hit the country, affecting the costs of everything from food to retail to energy heating costs, as well as the very real possibility of a railroad strike happening at the same time. Do you see these as black swan events or how seriously do you see these things affecting the markets? Um, I, I don't see a serious diesel diesel shortage um, really affecting the markets all that much. Uh, I think that there's a lot of negative commentary about it in the markets right now. Um, not in the markets per se. The markets actually aren't pricing in at all. If you actually look at diesel prices, gas prices, um, oil prices, 
Uh, it's just kind of the fear mongers online that are talking about the diesel shortage. So I don't think it's it's a big deal. If it were a big deal, the market would be reacting in, in some sort of way already. Um, it's not. It tells me that the market doesn't really think it's a big deal. And I, I agree it's, it's not a big deal. Um, I think that we are in the early stages of a massive disinflation trend. I mean, every leading indicator of inflation is completely rolling over. And actually, the most important one is money supply growth. That uh, M2 growth has, M2 growth leads inflation by 24 to 36 months. That's just what it does. And that is a very strong correlation. When M2 growth rates collapse, inflation rates tend to collapse over the next 24 to 36 months. Well, M2 growth has been collapsing since early 2021. So it's been collapsing for about 18 months now, going on 24 months. So we are due for a massive disinflation wave over the next 12, 24 months. And I think inflation falls back to 2%. I don't think we have a diesel shortage. I don't think diesel prices go that much higher. Um, the railroad strike... From my understanding, that's being resolved pretty nicely, pretty diplomatically. Um, I don't think that spills into something bigger than what it is today. Um, so long story short, not worried, not pricing into markets. Markets aren't pricing into markets. And I think you should listen to that, heed that advice and, and just move on as if that is a, uh, a non-factor for the markets today. Okay. Uh, and our next question from Rob Norman. If we think a recession is coming, why aren't we in any of the stocks you just stated would do well? So I think he's referring to some of the stocks we mentioned last week. If a recession were to come, how to prepare and invest in it. Right, right. That's a fabulous question. Um, because I don't, I don't, I don't play that. I, I mean, you can like, all right, let's go and buy Dollar General for a 20% gain next year. Cool. Then what? Sell Dollar General and go into something else? Yeah, I guess you can do that. It's fantastic, but that's not it's not what I do, right? What I do is I invest in great companies through good times and bad times, and let those stocks appreciate over time. Because buying, you know, it's buy SoFi stock today, buy Dollar General stock today. Which one's going to make you more money in five years? Easy, SoFi. Buy an order of magnitude. So I'm buying SoFi and not Dollar General. Um, that's that's why I'm not. I'm personally. And not recommending any stocks in that kind of recession playbook wheelhouse. I talk about them because I know there are a lot of people out there that do want to recession-proof their portfolio. So, hey, here's the information. Knowledge is power. If you want to recession-proof portfolio, yes, discount retailers, consumer defensives, like that makes a lot of sense. Go ahead and do that. But that's just not my game. My game is, okay, we have a recession coming. Let's let's buy stocks because of a recession. Charlie uh, Munger, Warren Buffett, very best investors of all time, in my opinion. And they have a quote, I forget if Buffett said it or Munger said it, or they both said it. They both have said versions of this. We do not buy stocks because of macroeconomic events. We, we don't buy a stock because the economy is going to do well over 12 months or buy a stock and the economy is going to do poorly over 12 months. We don't care about that. We buy good businesses at good prices and let them do their thing. So that's what I do. I, I kind of take that model and apply it to more early stage growthy type companies. I buy great businesses at great prices and then wait for them to do their thing. Now, unfortunately, the past 12 months has been a very rough market, but that doesn't change the fact that these are still good businesses doing good things. So the long story short to your long answer short to your question is it's not that I don't think they're not going to make you money over the next 12 months. Those recession investments, I think they will. It's just that's 
not how I invest. I don't invest for a rolling 12 month window and then buy this for a recession, buy this for the boom, buy this for that. But no, I, I just buy great companies, great prices and let them do their thing. So, so five stock, dollar general stock, we all have a finite amount of money. Where are you going to put it? Dollar general for 20% next year or so five for 500% over five years. I'm going to go with so So that's how I look at markets. That's where I, I invest and that's how I do things. And again, it's not for everybody and it shouldn't be for everybody, but that is my style. Um, and that's, that's why I'm not personally recommending any of those recession proofing investments. All right. Well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors, as always, Luke, any last words before we wrap? Um, yes. One did you wait first, 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 I have one more question. Did you ever get your pizza? Oh, I did get my, yeah, on, I actually got it at like. 10 p.m. I ordered it. Okay. I ordered it at like four. All right, good. I'm glad you got your pizza. That's all. That's the biggest thing I wanted to know. I eventually but got my pizza. That, any, any last words? I eventually got my pizza. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, the only thing I want to say is I, there's a lot of pessimism out there, a lot of fear. Um, and if the Fed doesn't cooperate tomorrow, then there's going to be even more fear because stocks are going to keep crashing. Um, in the face of that, I just get more optimistic and excited because this is this is what markets do. This is what economies do. Boom, bust, boom, boom, bust, boom, boom, bust, boom. It's, that's just what they do over and over and over and over again. And I have 100%, not I, but the markets, the economy has a 100% track record of saying that, okay, here we are in 2022. If this is where we are, down 25% in the markets, the economy's teetering on the brink of recession, things feel really awful. What that means, 100% track record, is that the next five, six, seven, eight years are going to be freaking awesome. That's what happens. Do you remember what it was like 2010 to 2019? Stocks soared. It was fantastic. Remember what happened 2002 to 2007? Stocks soared. It was freaking awesome. Remember what happened 1991 to 1999? Stocks soared. It was freaking awesome. Remember what happened 1982 to 1989? Stocks soared. It was freaking awesome. So, yes, 2022 has been an awful year. Everybody's fearful. Everybody's scared. People biting their nails. When's it going to end? I don't know, but it's going to end. And what I can tell you is probably 2023 to 2030, 2024 to 2030, it's going to be freaking awesome. This time is not different. It's never different. This is far less severe than what we faced in 2008, 2009. This is far less severe from a valuation perspective than we faced during the dot-com crash. This is far less severe than the inflation that Volcker and company deal with in the early 80s. So there is nothing really all that severe or bad about this current situation from a historical context. Yet through all of those crises, we got to the other side and then we had a then it was boom time. Boom time for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And that's why I'm so excited right now. We needed this. We, you know, COVID was not really a crash. COVID was a boop, boop. And nobody really, you know, in the markets, we didn't really feel it. 
we got we took a gut punch and got right back up. That's not a true crash. Like there was no time for people to really start tearing their hair out for capitulation for fear. For, you know, it didn't. It was more just like a quick panic and a quick reset. So we got to forget about that. Excluding that, we haven't had a really good market crash, really good drawn out prolonged bear market since 2008. We were overdue. So we needed this. And now that we have this, it's exactly what we needed to ensure that 20, the back half of the 2020s, mid half of the 20s are going to be freaking awesome. So we're getting it. We're down 25%. And now it's like, okay, buying season. It's buying season because eventually the tide is going to turn and boom times are going to come back. So the last thing we can – the biggest mistake investors make is chronocentrism, which is this idea mm-hmm. that you know the time you're living in is somehow different than or more important than or, or unique from the other periods in history before you or the ones that may come after you. Um, don't fall victim to chronocentrism. This era is not any more important or different than 2008, 2009, or 2000, 2001, or 1990, 91, or 80, 80, or 80, 81, 82. This time's not any different than that. So do exactly what you would have done then if you had a time machine. Like if I had a time machine, I'd go back in time. When would I go back in time and buy stocks? I go back to March 2009. I go back to late 2002. I go back to late, you know, 1991. Well, you, you have that right now. Late 2022 is late 08, early 09 is, you know, mid 02, late 02 is the early 90s is the early 80s. That's what you have before you. So why are you not buying the dip? Because stocks might go lower over the next three months. Terrible reason because they might. But over the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, history says they're going to go a lot higher. So buy the dip. Hold your nose and just go along for the ride. You're going to make money in 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. That's the key to investing in markets, understanding it's all in cycles. Everything happens in cycles. Nothing lasts forever. So when one cycle gets too extreme on the fear side or the hope side, take the counter. Right now, we're too far extreme on the fear side. Take the counter. Bet on the upside. Not saying the rebound's imminent, but I'm saying that 12 months down the line, 24 months down the line, 36 months down the line, people who bought the dip today will make a lot of money, regardless of what you buy probably, by the way. All stocks should be higher in 24 months. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, waiting for the stocks to soar and it to be freaking awesome. Bye, freaking all. Awesome.